Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the Kingdom of God. We're searching the Scriptures daily in order to find out what Jesus meant by his principal theme, the Kingdom of God Gospel. It's obvious to any scholar, indeed to any child, to anyone with an ordinary reading ability of the Bible, that Jesus was a preacher and herald and bearer of the message or gospel about the kingdom of God. That is what Christianity is all about, since it was Jesus' object to preach and proclaim the kingdom, and since he exhorted the apostles to do the same and charged the church with exactly the same duty of preaching the kingdom until the end of the age, it must be the concern of all those who love Jesus and study the Bible to ascertain what is meant by that gospel of the kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that the kingdom of God is an Old Testament Jewish idea which Jesus did not invent. The idea of the kingdom was not a novelty with Jesus. He did not introduce some brand new concept of the kingdom which no one had ever heard of before. Now certainly he clarified some aspects of the kingdom, but the concept, the basic thesis of the kingdom was about the most well-known religious idea in first century Palestinian Judaism. Remember that Jesus was a Jew who must be understood in his own first century Palestinian Jewish environment. The idea of the kingdom of God comes from Daniel chapter 2 verse 44, where we read that the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom which will supersede all the present nation-states of our world. It will crush them and will make a clean sweep of all present governments and set up a government of justice and fair social order for the entire globe. That's what was meant by the kingdom of God. It was a thoroughly political idea. It had to do with messianic politics, if you like. The kingdom of God meant a time coming when God would radically alter the affairs of mankind on this earth. Present governments would come to an end, and they would be superseded by the government of God, the revolutionary government of God, that's to say the kingdom of God. In Daniel 7.27, another key verse for defining the kingdom, we read that the kingdom is going to be given into the hands of the saints of the Most High, the Son of Man and the saints, Jesus and the saints, ruling together, and their kingdom will be an everlasting dominion, and all nations and tongues and languages will serve them, Daniel 7 and 27. Now this is a political idea. It's nevertheless a spiritual idea, because in the Hebrew way of thinking, according to the Hebrew mindset, things which are spiritual are also political and external and material. They can be manifested here on the earth in real social structures. They can be spiritual at the same time. Do you remember that when Jesus returned from death after the resurrection, he said, Touch me, I'm not a spook or a ghost, not an immaterial spirit, but an embodied person with a body that cannot die, immortal forever, and yet tangible and material and palpable, so it will be with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is not a, quote, spiritual idea in the sense that it's just a, an idea residing in your heart or a social ideal. It's a real government, a real concrete, organized theocracy, government of God to be established on this earth when Jesus returns. That's the fundamental idea we must get hold of in order to grasp the gospel as Jesus preached it. After all, as Christians, we're committed to learning the mind of Christ and sharing his mind. And his mind revolves around one central thesis, 
one grand watchword, one great axiomatic idea, the kingdom of God. Around this idea, all of Jesus' other teachings revolve. They all depend on his great master thesis, the kingdom of God gospel. I wonder if you've ever stopped to ask yourself, what was it that drove the mission of Jesus in Palestine? What was the underlying motive of all of his missionary activity for the three and a half years or so before he died? The answer to that question is given us in a wonderfully simple verse in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. In that verse Jesus said, I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That's the reason why God commissioned me. Now, if that's the reason why God commissioned Jesus, it surely is the reason for the existence of the Christian church. Can you say with confidence that you are part of that team of preachers of the kingdom of God, just as Jesus claimed to be? In the parallel in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Jesus said that he had come forth to preach and to herald. That was the reason why God had sent him. The parallel in Luke chapter 4, verse 43 states that his whole purpose was to proclaim and preach the gospel about the kingdom of God. It's a saving gospel that came from the lips of Jesus. Many people mistakenly think that Jesus saves only by his death and resurrection. That's a fundamental mistake that plagues Bible study. The words of Jesus are saving words. Not only did he die to cover our sins with his blood, not only was he resurrected from the dead, but he also preached and taught for three and a half years. And that teaching is saving teaching. Jesus taught to save. He didn't just die to save. Jesus was a saving teacher. It's a mistake to think of him just as the risen Lord. Important as that is, of course, he's not just a king and a lord and a master. He's also a rabbi and a teacher. In Isaiah 53, verse 11, we learn that the suffering servant, Jesus, will make many righteous through his knowledge, not only by his death, but through his knowledge, by the knowledge of God's plan which he imparted through his teaching. Remember that the Holy Spirit is meant to remind us of everything that Jesus taught. There's saving knowledge in the teaching of Jesus, and that teaching is summarized under that one major concept, the kingdom of God. We've been talking about an important aspect of that kingdom as it refers to the destiny and the activity of the faithful of all the ages in the future. In a famous passage in Revelation 20, 1 through 6, we read of a time coming when the saints are going to rule with Messiah for a thousand years. We use the technical term premillennialism to describe our view, namely that Jesus will come back pre or before the millennium to establish the kingdom. There's another view known as amillennialism or amillennialism, actually non-millennialism, which does not believe that there's going to be a future millennial kingdom after Jesus returns. For that school of thought, the millennium is simply a symbol of the time beginning from the death of Christ and onwards. It's a symbol for a long period of time, and we're in the millennium in the present time, according to that theory. For us, that's quite impossible. The millennium in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, describes a time yet future, and we began in our last program to set it in the context in which it finds itself in the book of Revelation. In chapter 19 of Revelation, 
we find a dramatic description of the arrival of the Word of God. That's the conquering Messiah riding on a white horse, and he comes, as Revelation 19 verse 15 says, to smite the nations, and he's going to rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. So the kingdom and the wrath of God are associated there, just as they were from the beginning of the preaching of the gospel in Matthew 3, where John the Baptist announced the impending arrival of the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God. And he warned the people to flee from the wrath to come. He said that the Messiah was going to gather his faithful into the barn of the kingdom of God and burn up the unrepentant with unquenchable fire. Now that's exactly the scene we have enacted here in the 19th chapter of Revelation. The Messiah by this time in the drama has arrived, and in verse 19 we see the beast, that ultimate tyrant, that concentration of satanic energy, that final opposer of God's ways, Satan's chief instrument, the beast, and the kings of the earth with him and their armies assembled to make war against the Messiah, sitting on his white horse and against his armies, the army of the Messiah. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the miraculous signs in his presence, by which he was able to deceive those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. At that point, then, the scene changes, and we move to the next great event. And I saw, says John, an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, that's to say the ancient Genesis serpent, who is the devil, or the Avalos, that's his Greek name, and Satan, Hasatan, that's his Hebrew name, and bound him for a thousand years. Now this event obviously follows the death and destruction of the beast. It follows the arrival of the Son of Man in power and glory, of which we read in the 19th chapter. And verse 3 of Revelation 20 says, And the angel threw him, the devil, into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that the devil should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things he must be released for a short time. What we have here is the complete incarceration, the arrest and imprisonment of the devil, finally and ultimately, so that he cannot, at least for a thousand years, deceive the nations any longer. I am sure that you cannot be among those who imagine that this event is already past. It would be unthinkable to say that the devil is presently not deceiving the nations any longer. The devil, according to many scriptures, has a massive range of activity at his disposal, According to the same book of Revelation, in chapter 12, verse 9, the devil is currently deceiving the entire world. The whole world lies in the power of the devil. John the Apostle said in 1 John 5, verse 19, Satan indeed is currently the god of this age, suggesting a massive influence. But here in this beautiful and refreshing chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, we come to a time where the earth, so to speak, sighs a great sigh of relief. The devil is going to be bound so that this terrible deceptive activity will come to an end. It is indeed the devil's deceptive activity which is responsible for all of our problems here in this society, and the devil is not going to be permitted to deceive the nations 
a moment longer following this event of his incarceration and arrest on the occasion of the future arrival of Jesus. And then in verse 4 we see this, I saw thrones and those who sat on them, and the power to judge was given to them. And I saw those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And I have to add here that the word of God is a technical term for the gospel of the kingdom. You can check that fact easily in Luke chapter 4 verse 43 and the next verse in chapter 5 verse 1. The word of God then was the offense which caused these faithful Christians to be martyred. Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And these came to life and began to reign with the Messiah for a thousand years. Now it should be plain to the ordinary reader, to the unprejudiced reader indeed, that what we see here is the coming to life of people who have been beheaded. Those who had been beheaded, those who had had their heads chopped off, came to life and began to reign with Messiah for a thousand years. That event, I have to tell you, has not yet happened. It depends on the future resurrection of the faithful. And that resurrection will occur, as 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23 says, at the arrival of Jesus in the future. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to request from us our book on the kingdom, an article on the millennium. Remember always the Bereans in Acts 17:11, who searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.